corrected. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Last week, in chapter one of Hebrews, we discussed and discovered how high and above everything else Jesus is. He's above the celestial beings. He's above the angels. He's above all of creation. And we saw last week that Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. That was the phrase I wanted you to go home with. I wanted you to take with you to remind you over and over again that Jesus is greater than anything that has ever been, greater than the angels in heaven, greater than Moses and the law, greater than your problems, greater than your past, your present, and your future. Jesus is greater. Chapter 2, though, now takes on a totally different twist. That this Jesus, he's not like the ancient mythological gods up on top of Mount Olympus. He's not this being that is so transcendent, so high and above that we can't know him. Instead, in chapter 2, it goes to chapter 1 from being Jesus is so great, he's so incredible. Then he goes to chapter 2, and it says, Jesus gets down. Maybe my sermon, by the way. I like it. Jesus gets down. And I want you guys to hear that because I want that truth to hit you hard. I want that truth to change the way you see and understand Jesus. But before we do dive into the text, I want to share with you a story. It's about a woman named Dr. Helen Rosevere. You guys ever heard of her? Anybody? Raise your hand if you ever heard of Dr. Helen Rosevere. Not many of you? Well, then you're in for a treat. Because Dr. Helen Rosevere is one of the most incredible um, just people ever. Dr. Helen Rosevere was, um, was passed away this past December, uh, December 2016, at the age of 91. She was born in 1925 in England, where her father taught mathematics. Raised in church, uh, her Sunday school teacher once told her class about India, and so she resolved one day, from that day forward, that she was going to be a missionary. When she went off to college, she went to study medicine at Cambridge. While there, she was in a class and was in this class learning about Christianity. In the winter of 1945, the Lord seemed to meet her in a personal way during a student retreat. She gave her testimony on the final evening, and the Bible teacher wrote Philippians 3.10 in her Bible. And this is what it said. Tonight you've entered into the first part of the verse that I may know him. This is only the beginning, and then there's a long journey ahead. My prayer for you is that you will go on through the verse to know the power of his resurrection and also, God willing, one day perhaps, the fellowship of his sufferings being made, more, being made conformable onto his death. Dr. Helen Rosevere sensed an increased call, and by the way, I got all of this from the Gospel Coalition, and she felt an increased call going towards missions and publicly declared during a missionary gathering in North England, I'll go anywhere God wants me to go, whatever the cost. After graduating from Cambridge with her doctorate in medicine, she studied for six more months at the Worldwide Evangelism Crusade College at Crystal Palace. From there, she went to Belgium to study French. Then she went to Holland to take a course on tropical medicine as she prepared for her appointment as a medical missionary in the Congo. In 1953, at the age of 28, she arrived in the northeastern region of the Congo, later named Zaire. In the first two years she was there, she founded a training school for nurses, training women to serve as nurse evangelists, who in turn would run clinics and dispensaries in different regions. In 1955, October, 
She was transferred seven miles away to run an abandoned maternity and leprosy center in Nebo Bongo. Working, she helped transform the center into a hospital with 100 beds, serving mothers, lepers, and children, along with training school for paramedics and 48 rural clinics. Outside of these facilities, there was no other medical help for over 150 miles. The Congo became independent from Belgium in 1960, and civil war broke out in 1964. All the medical facilities they had established were destroyed. Helen was among 10 Protestant missionaries put under house arrest by the rebel forces for several weeks, after which time they were moved and imprisoned. She describes the horror of what happened after she tried to escape. They found me, dragged me to my feet, struck me over head and shoulders, flung me on the ground, kicked me, dragged me to my feet, only to strike me again. The sickening, searing pain of broken tooth, a mouthful of sticky blood, my glasses gone. Beyond sense, numb with horror and unknown fear, driven, dragged, pushed back, yelled at, insulted, and cursed. Her captives, she wrote, were brutal and drunken. They cursed and swore, they struck and kicked, they used the butt end of rifles and rubber truncheons. They were roughly taken, thrown in prisons, humiliated, threatened. On October 29, 1964, Helen Rose was brutally raped. She later recounted, on that dreadful night, beaten and bruised, terrified and tormented, unutterably alone, I had felt at last God had failed me. Surely she, he could have stepped in earlier. Surely things need not have gone that far. I had reached what seemed to be the ultimate depth of despairing nothingness. In this darkness, however, she sensed the Lord saying to her, you asked me when you were first converted for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want it? These are not your sufferings. They're mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. She eventually received an overwhelming sense of privilege that Almighty God would stoop to ask of her a mere nobody in a forest clearing in the jungles of Africa, something he needed. She later pointed to God's goodness. Through the brutal, heartbreaking experience of rape, God met with me with outstretched arms of love. It was an unbelievable experience. He was so utterly there, so totally understanding. His comfort was so complete, and suddenly I knew. I really knew that his love was unutterably sufficient. He did love me. He did understand. She further wrote, God understood not only my desperate misery, but also my awakened desires and mixed up horror of emotional trauma. I knew that Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, was true on all levels. Not just in a hyper-spiritual shelf where I tried to relegate it. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way in the fellowship of his sufferings. This theme of privilege became prominent in her ministry. In the 1976 Urbana Address, she said this, one word became unbelievably clear, and that word was privilege. He didn't take away pain or cruelty or humiliation. No, it was all there. But now it was altogether different. It was with him, for him, in him. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little ways the edge of fellowship of his sufferings. In the weeks of imprisonment that followed and the subsequent years of continued service, looking back, one has tried to count the cost, but I found it all swallowed up in privilege. The cost suddenly seems very small and transient in the greatness and the permanence of privilege. 
After returning to Africa in 1966, she, began, she soon left Nebobongo and established a new medical center in Niakunda in northeastern Zaire. She produced a 250-bed hospital, a maternity ward, training college for doctors, a center for leprosy, and endeavors. It was in 1973 when she finally returned back to the UK for health reasons, settling in Northern Ireland. She traveled and wrote several books as a missionary advocate, and she went to be with the Lord, whom she counted a privilege to suffer, on December 7, 2016, at the age of 91. Dr. Helen Rosevere was truly a person of whom this world was not worthy. She related with Christ in the midst of such suffering, later in other places she writes, because Christ came down and made himself known and identifiable. Dr. Rosevere knew and wanted to know Christ more in, in his suffering because she knew that Christ was there even in her sufferings. That all that she experienced, she literally says in, in one of her books, that in, even in the midst of her brutal assault, she knew that Christ was with her, and Christ also was the one who received the brutal assault. Jesus gets down. Jesus comes down is something that I say to be kind of fun, kind of say, yeah, he comes down. And it's a principle called this idea about Emmanuel, this incarnation. But guys, it's often just a theological principle. But for Dr. Helen Rosevere, it was life for her. This very idea that Jesus was in, with her in her suffering, this very idea that Jesus was with her in her whole identity and her life was what she exactly needed and counted it her privilege so that she can live out the rest of her life knowing that Jesus is with her. As we dive into the text, I want you to see how Jesus comes down and he comes down and I want us to truly understand and how me how that absolutely transforms the way we understand him. His salvation for us and how we can live our lives. In verse 9, if you throw it up on the screen real quick, if you guys can. Verse 9 says this. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. First thing is there's four ways and four persons, four people in Jesus who gets down. The first one is Jesus is the king who gets down. That passage right there, he's crowned with glory and honor. Who wears a crown? Anybody? A king. Good job. Jesus is the king who gets down. He's the one that wears the crown. He's crowned with glory and honor. He was made lower than angels, but then he, through his suffering and death, was lifted high, exalted to the highest of places. He's exalted with the name above all names. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. But that king of kings, that lord of lords, who is the very radiance of the glory of God, he came down. He's the type of king who rides in the front of the army. The one who's roughing it with his men. He's the king you want to follow because he's been in the muck. He's been in the dirt. He's been in the trenches with you. He's not the king that says, you know, you guys ever, okay, this is show my nerdiness side of me here. There's a musical called Hamilton that I'm uh, currently obsessed with and I've loved, and I've never seen it, but I plan on seeing it one day. And there's a part in it, the guy, King George, he sings the song, You'll Be Back. So in my mind, when I think of the opposite of the type of king we have here, is I'm thinking about King George, 
You know, he's a king who sings like, you'll be back. He's kind of like, you know, sends troops to do his biddings, and he just gets to live in luxury and do whatever. But then on the contrast, you, you see George Washington. You know, you see George Washington fighting with his men, riding into the night, riding all throughout the night, suffering along with lack of rations, lack of supplies. And he see the type of leader George Washington is, and the men that want to follow George Washington. And that's this comparison we have is we have a king. And I want you to understand this. When we say king, we really do mean he is in control. He is in charge. He rules it all. It's all his. He's more powerful than any president, any CEO. He's more powerful than any emperor that's ever existed. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. But that king of kings, by whose very word the universe was placed, that king of kings whose very word shot out stars. That very king of kings whose by very power upholds every law of physics, of mathematics that exists. That king came down. Made himself, even at this point, lower than angels. He became flesh and blood. He came down into the muck so that the one that we choose to follow is one that, that was, knows the life we live. He was the one who slept in the dirt in the tents, is the one who we choose to follow in war. Jesus is the king who came down. He's the king who conquered, who became even the name that has every other name by suffering and by dying. Verse 10, if you go there real quick. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, through suffering. This verse right here, this passage where he said, should make the founder of their salvation. There's another word actually, a more accurate translation of that word literally is a champion or a captain. Does anybody else have a Bible here that actually translates it to captain? Just out of curiosity? Somebody does? What translation is that? You don't have any idea? I love it by the way. So I was with, um, I was in seminary and they were playing a trivia game and see how much these seminary students knew the Bible. And it had all these different names of, like, names for Jesus. You know, like, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Shepherd, and all this kind of stuff, right? And, one, and they said, which one does not belong? And one of the choices was Captain of Salvation. And I'm like, I've never heard of Captain of Salvation. That's got to be the answer. So I'm like, Captain of Salvation. I'm feeling all smug and smart. And they're like, Arr! And I'm like, oh, what? No. I was wrong. This actually translates in all, many translations, Captain of Salvation. So, by the way, if you guys ever want another way to refer to Jesus, you can call him your captain. You're welcome for that. I think that's awesome. <laughs> Calling him the captain of salvation. Oh, captain, my captain. But here's what this really means. Here's what that passage is talking about. When he says he's the captain of salvation, when he says he's a champion of salvation, what that means is in the old days, fights would often be selected by having a representative fight for them. You know? Um, the champion might be Goliath. And so the champion comes out for the Philistine army and says, I'm the champion. I represent the army. Who's going to face me? And everybody's like, too scared to face him. And then David comes out. He says, I'll be the champion of God's army. You know, when I was a kid one day, my best friend and my sister, we were like, I don't know, we were really young. And we would go out and we were out kind of playing in the woods. And we discovered this like old abandoned like tree fort looking thing. And it was old and it looked really bad. So we are like having fun with it. Then we broke it. Then we are like, oh, it's so much more fun to break it. So we broke it all apart and had a great time with it. Then these older kids came out, and they're like, that was our fort. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> so we were like, I'm sorry. Well, like, well, you guys have to fight us now. And like, there was like four older guys. It was me, my sister, and my best friend. And my sister was like in like kindergarten at the time. 
And so I was like, well, it's not really fair. You gotta, they're like, okay, okay, who's your best fighter? And I was like, oh, yes, I'll do it. <laughs> so I get out there, so me and this other kid, we're just we're getting into this fight, and I look over, the other two guys jump on my other friend, and my sister's throwing rocks at them. <laughs> True story. But <laughs> the very next day, this is what I love about kids, the very next day on the bus, they were like, they came up to me, and I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to fight again. They're like, hey, you're good at fighting. You want to play football? <laughs> and I said, yeah, we became really good friends. So... <laughs> But that's what it was. A champion is the one that you, you step forward. You're the, it's the one that you said, you said, hey, represent me. You know, stand for me. Fight for me. Be our representative. Right? And he said when he's a champion, when he's a captain of salvation, that's exactly what he did. He stepped forward. He says, I'll be their champion. I'll be their captain. What is he fighting? The one thing we're most terrified of all. I, I mean, honestly, if we're real with ourselves. He's fighting death. He's fighting death. I mean, if you think about it, most of you guys are kind of afraid of death. Your life is a vapor. You realize it's inevitable. Every one of us, there's not a single person that's not going to face death at one point. And as fear of death, it's, it, it creeps up on you, and it keeps you in captivity. Verse 15. If you can do, go there, I'm, I'm challenging. So, I'm sorry, guys. And deliver all those who, fear, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death is terrifying, and this fear leads you to slavery. You're trapped by your fear of death. And this affects the way you live. There are so many of you who are scared of your own death or your own mortality. Maybe you have your children's. And you have this fear of death. And it makes you, maybe immobilizes you. Maybe it paralyzes you. Maybe it keeps you from doing what you're called to do. It holds you in captivity. But our champion took our greatest fear, death, and he put it away. He did it all by himself. Our champion stepped forward and said, I'll fight for them. I'll come down. This is the champion who comes down and fights our fight for us. This is not our knight in shining armor who kind of stays up there and be like, eh, I'm kind of busy. This is our champion, our knight, who stepped up and said, no, no, that's their biggest fear. And I'll fight it for them. Verse 14, he says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He did it by coming down. The champion came down. Hear this, so the king came down, the champion, the captain came down. He became flesh and blood. He sacrificed himself. You know that song, Christ is risen from the dead, it says, he conquered death by death. And now death's power has been defeated, and he's taking the fear out of it. The enemy's greatest weapon, the weapon within all of the weapons, was death. I mean, that was the greatest weapon. The greatest weapon the enemy had was, you're going to die, let's keep you in fear of it. But Paul now says, oh, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Christ has removed death by death. I want you to hear this. Here's how he did it. He came down as a captain, as our representative. He came down to our lowly estate. He took on flesh and blood. And he lived the perfect sinless life. He was the epitome, the very radiance, the very impression, the very clone. He is God himself. And he came and lived the perfect sinless life on this earth. But here's, here's how he conquered death itself, though. By him taking upon the curse of death. By him taking upon the wages of death. By him taking upon all that was the penalty of death when he didn't deserve it. When he took that on, he took on all the penalty from us. So that us and him can now say we deserve none of the penalty 
because our standing before God is righteousness. Hear this, hear this. He conquered death by dying the death that we deserved so that now when we look at death and say, you have no sting, you have nothing that we have to fear because Jesus conquered death, I have eternity ahead of me. But to God that loves me and made me. Do you hear that? Jesus came down. Our captain, our champion, conquered death. So that death no longer has a sting over you. Will you live like that? Do you really believe that? And will you start living like that? Death has no control. You do not have to be captive to a fear of death any longer. Dr. Helen Rosevere did not live in fear of death. She knew who the one who conquered death, the one who came down, was champion for her and conquered death so that when she went, she said, I no longer fear death. Will you live like that? Let's go to verse 11 and 12, and then 17. So I'm challenging you today. I'm sorry. He's back there laughing at me. I appreciate you guys. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. I want you to get this. He was the king who came down, gets down. He's the champion or the captain who gets down. Number three, he is the brother who gets down. I'll say that again. He is the brother that gets down. In this passage, we see that Jesus is also called our brother. He is the brother that is not ashamed to call us that. And I'll be honest, I was a terrible brother to my sister in many ways, in many times. I grew up being the one that said, I hated when my little sister would follow me around. She's two and a half years younger than me. And she, I would like, this is a true story, this is sad, I admit it. This is sin, confession. I would flatten the tires of her bicycle so she couldn't chase after me in the neighborhood. <laughs> I know. Wow. I know. Everybody's like, oh, nobody likes me anymore. <laughs> Every sister in this room is like, oh my gosh. It's true. I did that. I was the brother that was just annoyed with his little sister chasing him around. I wanted to go hang out with my friends. I wanted my sister not to follow me around on a little bicycle. She had this little like red, pink bicycle thing. And I'm like, you're embarrassing me, Jennifer. And I hated it. I was that guy. I still remember this. In high school, when I became a Christian, I got to this point almost holier than thou with my sister. I got to the point like, Jennifer, you're so terrible and all this kind of stuff, but I never once invited her to church with me. And I remember my senior year of high school, my heart was so convicted of my relationship with my sister and the fact that I, I wasn't bringing her to church that I invited her to a retreat weekend at our church and she came and she professed saving knowledge of grace, of, of knowledge of Jesus, and got in front of everybody, was sharing her testimony. And when she got up in front of everybody sharing her testimony, I just could not stop weeping. And I ran up to my sister on stage in front of everybody and hugged her and told her that I'm so sorry for the brother I've been. And I promise that I will come down and meet wherever she's at, whatever she needs. And I hope to this day that I've been that brother to her. Jennifer, Gina's going to be like, oh, you did okay, but... <laughs> See, I wasn't the brother she, I wasn't ashamed of calling her brother. I was more like the prodigal son brother. You know? I was the prodigal son brother that was like, once I got saved, I was like, she's not, she's not walking right. She's not very good. 
And I love this illustration here because I want you to see the parallel to the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son was, that, was really about the elder brother. The elder brother in the story stayed far away from what the younger brother was doing. He kept his hands clean. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus is the elder brother who went into the pigsty for his younger brother and wasn't ashamed of him. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? Our older brother Jesus came down to the mess with us and isn't ashamed of us. He loves us. He digs in the dirt with us. He isn't embarrassed by us. He knows the mess you made with your life and he still loves you. He goes diving in with you. Do you hear that? He's not the older brother standing away with his arms crossed being like, mm, look how bad you are. Look how good I am. He went diving into the pigsty with you. He went chasing after you. Jesus is the older brother that gets down. He's the older brother that comes running after you. Guys, I don't know how many of you guys experience this in your life. Maybe you've experienced it in this church. You know, let me just be honest with you. Most of the churches you know, that we kind of see is full of a lot of older brother types, right? A lot of people who are like, hmm, right? I don't know why. That's how I think of that. That's the look and sound when I get when people are judging me. <laughs> I don't know where that comes from, but we're full of it. The churches, I'm just taking ownership of it. We're full of older brothers. Can I tell you that the older brother that we're called to be like is Jesus. He is the older brother that got down in the dirt, got down in the mess. And maybe you're sitting here and you're like, man, look at the mess I made of my life. My actual family, my blood relatives want to disown me. They don't want to be known by me. They're embarrassed of me. I'm the, I'm the embarrassment for them. Can I tell you, you're not too big of an embarrassment for Jesus. Do you hear me? I don't care how big of a mess you made out of life. He'll come diving in with you. And that's what he did. He took right in. He was the older brother that the Israelites were called to be. He's the older brother that we're called to be. He's the older brother that gets down. Do you see him? Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. I'm going to read it there. In the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Lastly, Jesus is the priest who gets down. I feel like it's like a YouTube video or something right there. The priest who gets down. But he's the priest who gets down. The author of Hebrews is saying to us, he became like us. Why? That he might be a merciful mediator and a perfect propiti propitiation of our sins. As a faithful high priest, Jesus is the covering over the sins of his people. He is the propitiation. He did what the priests of the Old Testament could only symbolize. What propitiation means. Anybody want to give it a try? What's it mean? Who's, who's bold? What does that word mean? Atoning sacrifice. Very good. What else? Propitiation. What does that mean? What's that what? Substitute, good. Passes something through into the ground, okay. Anybody else? So for all intents and purposes, a very simple answer is appeasement, right? A simple one-word answer is appeasement. And what literally, what propitiation is, is that you're, somebody's owed a debt, and then somebody pays it off so that that person is appeased. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So let's, I'll give an example of this, very practical. Let's just say Gina owes 
somebody a million dollars, right? And Gina's like, I, I don't got a million dollars. So I come in and I say, all right, tell you what, I have a, a priceless baseball card. I don't, but if I did, I'm like, here's my propitiation for it. Here's my appeasement to you. Here's my payment so that you can now be appeased. The debt is clean. It's covered. Does that make sense? So Jesus said, he said, says here that he is the perfect propitiation. He paid the debt by dying in place of the repentant sinner. His work covers their guilt to satisfy God's justice and turn away God's wrath. Now here's the thing though, and I want you guys to get this, is that he was only made perfect propitiation because he was made like us, flesh and bone. And I want you to get that. See, I want you to understand that for him, when he became like us, he knew what it meant to suffer, and he knew exactly what he was willing and walking into. I don't want you to miss up. There's, there's a lot of people, a lot of schools of thought out there right now who don't like talking about the idea of wrath. There's a lot of people who don't like the idea of talking about God of justice, right? They don't like talking about, well, there's judgment. People don't like the word judgment because we don't like to be that person who goes, right? Can I tell you this? Now, just hear me very well. Without judgment, without righteousness, and without wrath, then we have no concept or clue what is justice. And we crave justice, don't we? Hear me very well when I say this. There are a lot of people, a lot of movements out there that just talk about, it's all about love. Yes, it's about love, but it's also about justice. And I want you to hear this, that we as human beings, we need love and justice. Because I don't want to live in a world where justice is not a known reality, and it's a fickle object. I don't want to live in a world where justice for you could, might mean whatever you want to be, so you can take because you're more powerful than me. I love the fact that we are unified in this place with a desire to see justice, God's justice move. And so we need a God of justice. And so Jesus came as the perfect propitiation. Guys, hear this. I want you to know this. He took upon himself every bit of your embarrassing life that you might have, every bit of guilt and sin that you might feel. He took upon himself every sin, every wrong decision, every wrong thing, every absence of the right thing that you did. He took it upon himself and said, everything that he owes, that person owes, I'll cover. I'll pay. I met a guy in Orlando. Uh, he worked for Wycliffe Bible Translators. And the headquarters was in Orlando. And amazing story. He lived for 25 years in an area um, in uh, Guinea. No, no. Papua New Guinea. Very different, sorry. In Papua New Guinea where um, he lived for 25 years trying to bring the Bible to a place that didn't even have a written language at the time. So he was there, and um, I shared this story before, I'm going to share it again anyway, though. He was there, and one day he was walking with some translators and some, some of his friends in the community, and he had chocolate from America. And so he handed a piece of chocolate to everybody, and they would eat it, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is too good. Like the, I think the words that he was using basically translated to, this is so good, this is better than life. This is so good, this is better than life. And so they were saying that about this milk chocolate he gave out. So he was like, Awesome. Well, later on, he was really struggling over the idea of Jesus as a ransom, right? As a ransom. And as he was working, working on this, the people that his like, language partners that he was talking to, as he was working with, said, said, oh, you know what it reminds me of? It's like this story. It's a tradition that we have here where if somebody, let's just say somebody's cutting down a tree and the tree accidentally falls and hits somebody else and kills that person, 
right? Then the person who was cutting down the tree would have to go to his house, be locked in his house, and have his, his kind of relatives surround the house, and then everybody else who was a family of the dead person would come and would stand there circling the house demanding justice. And what would happen is the family of the guy who killed the other guy who was in the house would come and bring goods, you know, whether it's food, rice, fruit, whatever it is, would pile up a bunch of goods in front of the house until finally the family would say, enough, the debt is paid, you're okay. And then he'd be allowed to leave the house. And so the guy was like, yes, <laughs> that's exactly it. That's what Jesus did. Jesus said, okay, here's my life instead of theirs. Here's my life instead of theirs. So me, I'm the goods. I'm, I'm the best goods. I'm the king of kings, the perfect life. Here's me, give it, and it's done. It's enough. And when he said that, the people around him started saying, that's what Jesus did? They started saying the same word that they said to describe the chocolate, that it's too good. It's so good. It's so good. It's too good. It's better than life. So I remember he had a video when they finally brought the New Testament printed in their language to the whole village, they were already celebrating because they experienced Jesus as the propitiation of their sins. If you don't know him in such a way, I pray that you do. That you come to this understanding, saving belief and faith. I know it's, it's a step, it's a jump, it's a leap. But you come to this place in your life where you say that Jesus I know what I've done, and I need a propitiation. I know something inside of me knows that there is justice, the divine that God made inside of me, that being made in his image, there's something missing inside of me, and I know, God, that you are the answer to it. I pray that you make that decision if you don't know it today, to know him. Jesus is the priest who gets down. He knew suffering from the insides, therefore he's the priest who's able to help us in temptation. The author of Hebrews is saying, for he himself, because he himself was, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because Jesus knows suffering and temptation from the inside, he knows how to help you in temptation. It's an incredibly glorious thing that Jesus knows how to help you in temptation and suffering, not theoretically, not academically, but personally, because he's lived in your skin. He's walked a mile in your boots. He knows what it's like to be fully human in a fallen world. That's how much it took us to deliver us from bondage of sin. To deliver us, Jesus had to share in our very nature, suffer temptation with us. And that's how far he had to go to deliver us from temptation and sin. So when you face temptation and sin, you know that you have a savior, a priest, who pleads on your behalf, who mediates to the Father, who offered himself as a propitiation of your sin. You can stand in righteousness because of that. Jesus is the king who came down, the champion who came down, the brother who came down, the priest who came down. He is the king who gets down. He's greater because of it. He is greater because he comes down. Do you know him as greater? Do you know him as brother and as champion and as king and as priest? Do you know that he gets down for you? May you receive him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus, you get down. 
Because as the king, you laid aside all that was due to you, your power and your authority, and you came down to us. As champion, you coming down saves us, that you are a representative, and you fought the greatest enemy, the greatest threat of the enemy, death, and you conquered, so we no longer fear death. God, as our brother, in the midst of our embarrassment, in the midst of our decisions, you come down and you get into the mess and the muck with us. And God, as our priest, you offer yourself as propitiation. You are our appeasement before a righteous God. And you, you suffer alongside of us. You've known what it's like for us to suffer temptation. So we know that we have a high priest who ever pleads for us, who knows us. So thank you, Jesus, that you get down. God, may we know you in such a way. May it change us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.